Our Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 25, uh, from verse 19. Genesis 25, 19 to the end of the chapter. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padamaram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Sorry, yep, the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After that, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished, He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Thanks, John. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a a little bit of a closer look at that passage together. Gracious Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you for the way that it details your dealings with your ancient people. And ask that you would be with us now as... Uh, We look at these details, that your spirit who inspired these words might also illumine our hearts so that we might hear you speaking to us and respond in a way that honours you and uh, blesses you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this general idea uh, in the world that if you challenge someone's gut instinct about who they are or what they want to do, if you question they're striving to do something that's good for them and for theirs, that you're denying them being true to themselves. And so you're denying what's best for them. Indeed, to challenge someone's gutting instinct or encourage them to not go with what they feel so deeply about and not to grasp after whatever they think is good for themselves is often seen as an attack on who they are and possibly even uh, as psychological and emotional abuse. And it's not just those in the world who think this way, it's uh, those in church as well. 
Which one of us hasn't at some time gone with our gut, shot off our mouth and uh, about someone or something or done something and then spent the next however long justifying the fallout as, well, that just what happen- that's just what happens when you're true to yourself and any criticism uh, is, is harassment. But what if your gut instinct is wrong? What if grasping after something that might even be a good thing isn't good at all? What if you can't be true to yourself and treasure God's blessings given you as well? What if it actually means we're despising God's blessings? Because that seems to be what's happening in the passage uh, today with Esau and Jacob. Now, last week, in the first bit of chapter 25, uh, with the death of Abraham, we saw God keep on keeping his promises to Abraham. His small promises with his, with Abraham's oldest son Ishmael and his big promises through Abraham's miracle son Isaac. Uh, Those big promises being that he'd make Abraham's name great, that he'd make him into a great nation, that he'd give his descendants the promised land, that he'd be their God and they'd be his special people and that he'd bless the whole world through them. And God's been true to his word. Uh, These promises, they're coming to fulfillment. He made Abraham great and wealthy and powerful. He enabled him to stake a claim in the promised land. He gave him a miracle child, Isaac, and he found the right wife for Isaac. And then all God's blessings are passed on to Isaac as God blesses Isaac over and above Abraham's other older sons. And this countercultural choice of God with Isaac, continues with Isaac's miracle kids, Esau and Jacob, as God graciously makes Baron Rebekah pregnant and then decides, against conventional wisdom, that the older, Esau, serve the younger, Jacob, there in verse 23. Now in this we see God's sovereign grace, and it's a key moment for the rest of the Bible illustrating God's sovereignty. That as God, he has mercy and compassion on whomever he chooses. God's sovereign grace. It's a, it's a big and important topic worth thinking about. But as we look at this passage, it seems the focus uh, is more on what Esau and Jacob are doing than on what God's doing. And so that's where we're going to focus uh, today. Firstly, on Esau despising his birthright. Uh, secondly, how Jacob despises God's gift. And then finally, how we might instead treasure the blessings of God's grace to us in Jesus. So first up, Esau despises his birthright. And we were told that, right, fairly plainly at the end of the chapter. He does it right there. Uh, But the way that we come to see this is masterfully told. Genesis is an incredible story, well told. Even from his birth, uh, we get a hint of what Esau is like. In verse 25, he's described as red and hairy, like an animal. And then it seems he can't even speak properly. Verse 30, it's a fascinating verse. Uh, Like if an animal could talk and it's only got food on its mind, there's a little bit of a picture of what Esau is here. He grunts, feed me now, when he comes to Jacob, like he's going to snaffle it up like an animal. 
uh, wood. All mouth, no hands, face first in the, in the dish. And the way that he says it in Hebrew, it sounds uh, crass and comical. It's a little bit like uh, Homer Simpson, whose desire for beer makes him incoherent and drooling. Mm, beer, that's all he can think about. Uh, only for Esau, all he can think about, and all he can see is the stew that Jacob wants, and he wants it right now, like right now. Uh, so, so now that he doesn't even have time to even say it all. So he's like, feed me now from, from the red. In the Hebrew, he doesn't even say stew. He just says red. Red. That red. Red like his face is maybe getting with uh, Jacob, who's knowing exactly what he wants. Uh, and maybe Jacob's annoyingly pointing to something else red nearby with a questioning look. But this red thing? And Esau's like, no, no, that red. That red, pointing at the stew. I'm starving. Esau's like a caveman coming across all animal and appetite. A man driven by base desires, earthly and impatient. He's living entirely for the moment. Verse 32, he's like, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Verse 33, so he swore an oath to Jacob, selling his birthright to him. It's like he's saying, whatever man, just just give me the stew. He's so focused on the here and now, on earthly things. But he's also pretty presumptuous. Because we know later on, when it comes to it, and his dad, Isaac, gets tricked to pass the blessing and the inheritance onto Jacob instead of him, he's desperately upset. He begs his dad to take it back and to give it to him, but Isaac can't and he won't. And he's bitterly upset, murderously so. He wants to murder Jacob. Why? Well, because in his brain, this shouldn't happen. And so he never thought it could or would happen. Which might be why, back here in chapter 25, he's, he's like, sure, take my birthright, as if that's going to happen. You know, I'm dad's favourite, right? I'm the oldest, the inheritance is coming to me, no matter what. So I can do and say whatever I like now. But that's presumptuous. He's basing his life on the way of the world, on conventional wisdom. Uh, His hopes are in himself as the oldest and dad's favourite, so he doesn't care what he says or does now, which he's sure, because he's sure it'll, it'll just work out for him in the end. It's presumptuous. And it's in all this, in his earthliness and in his presumption, as he trades his future for a bowl of stew, we see Esau despise his birthright. But uh, Jacob isn't much better. In some ways, he might be worse, which uh, brings us to a second point. Jacob despises God's gift. Because unlike Esau, whose bad behaviour uh, is seems like a spur-of-the-moment kind of thing, Jacob's is malicious and calculated. This is flagged even at his birth with the name that he's given. He comes out grasping his brother's heel. His name, Jacob, it means he clutches the heel. And he struggles to catch up with his brother from birth into the rest of his life. And his name comes to mean he betrays or he deceives. Esau's flaws are brash and earthly, but Jacob's, they're calculated and malicious. If Esau is like accidental manslaughter, then Jacob is like premeditated murder. Because the way he goes about getting the birthright off Esau, it's cold and, and heartless. It's calculated. First, sell me your birthright. That's the first thing we hear Jacob say in the Bible. First, sell me your birthright. He doesn't see his brother or his hunger. He just sees an opportunity to get ahead. No, please, 
Please sell me your birthright. Just sell it to me now. It's now or never, Esau. No stew. If you stew over it, just go with your gut, Esau. And then when he does, Jacob's quick to seal the deal. Verse 33. Swear to me now. Don't fuss over the fine print. Just sign on the dotted line and the stew is yours. Uh, Jacob's been thinking about this. He's been planning, waiting for the moment. And before you know it, Esau's a loser and Jacob's a winner. But at what cost? He wins by deception. He wins only as his brother loses. And as that happens, he's exposed for what he is. He's all about the stuff and not the people. The loot, not the love. Now, God did say the older would serve the younger, but that doesn't excuse Jacob for the cold way that he treats his brother to get there. And if he did know what God told his mother, if his mother happened to pass that information on to him, that the older would serve the younger, then he's even worse. Because he's not just kicking a big, dumb, red puppy to get a laugh. He's effectively flicking the bird to God and his word. I heard you say so, God, but... I'll do it myself, thanks. He's despising both his brother and God. Either way, whether he knew what God said or not, grasping after the inheritance the way that he does shows that he's prepared to take what is only God's to give at the cost of loving his brother. And so while his brother might despise his birthright, Jacob effectively despises God's gift. And in both these, in Esau despising his birthright, and Jacob despising God's gift, I think there's nothing for us to take away, which is uh, the third point. We should be treasuring God's blessings, treasuring God's grace, not despising it. Because the reality is, if we're believing in Jesus, then we're Abraham and Isaac's true descendants which means we've inherited God's promised blessings, which he's lavished upon us by his grace, which is why the Apostle Paul uh, writes in Jesus, God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, uh, that in Jesus God loves us, he's adopted us into his family, we're his kids, we're his children. In Jesus, God's our Heavenly Father who's lavished his grace on us. In Jesus, the riches of God's grace is our spiritual birthright. And so we should be careful to treasure that spiritual birthright, not to despise it, not to be like Esau and Jacob. So firstly, unlike Esau, we should avoid being earthly because those who have their minds on earthly things, they're destined for destruction. As Paul, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, uh, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. If someone sacrifices all their time, money, effort and energy on living only according to their base desires for satisfaction, whether it be sexual sexually or to be in control or to take vengeance or to look good or to feel good, if all they live for is the stuff in this world, then it's their appetites that they're worshipping. In effect, their God is their stomach because their mind is on earthly things. And those who only think of earthly things, well, they're godless like Esau. 
and at the end of the day, they should expect nothing from God except his rejection. Even if they tasted something of God's goodness and grace in the gospel, as Esau had, tasted something of the goodness of being amongst God's family, as Esau had, if they despise these blessings and fall away from Jesus, it's game over. As the book of Hebrews says rather soberly in chapter 6 of that book. But for those who haven't cast Jesus aside, that even though uh, might have fallen prey to the ways of the world for a while, those of us who are trusting in Jesus are not of this world. And Paul says, we have been raised with Christ. So, as a consequence, we should set our hearts on, on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. How? Well, he goes on to say, by putting whatever belongs to our earthly nature to death. As Paul goes on, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. In his short, uh, once popular book, uh, 1656 book, uh, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen, he writes, he rightly notes that this verse here in uh, Colossians is for believers waiting for glory. But up to that day, our earthly nature will be active and so we'll always be, need to be putting to death those things that belong to it. But we can't do this without God's grace, which he's lavished on us in Jesus. And as such, uh, Owen notes, Not to be daily mortifying, that is, putting to death our sin, is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, grace and love of God who hath furnished us with a principle of doing it. Owen's saying, not to regularly put to death the earthly nature is to sin against God's grace. It's to be dangerously close to being like Esau, led more by our base desires with our stomach as our God and in danger of despising our spiritual birthright. So it's worth checking what in your earthly earthly nature are you putting to death at the moment. Uh, John Owen's book, it's a good help uh, for you in working this through. I mean, it sounds like a daunting title, I know, The Mortification of Sin, but it's actually surprisingly fresh uh, and refreshing uh, as he takes... John, uh, John Owen, he takes you time and time again back to God's grace and treasuring the blessings there by putting to death the earthly nature by the power of the Spirit. Now, unlike Esau, who despised his birthright, let's, let's treasure instead the, the blessings of God's grace by putting to death our earthly nature. Uh, what's more, let's not despise our spiritual birthright for being presumptuous like Esau either. Uh, he presumptuously relied on being the oldest and daddy's favourite and maybe in Je- and, and people in Jesus' day, well, they had similar presumptions. But uh, John the Baptist was quick to say this, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is ready at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It doesn't matter who your mum or your dad is. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a church leader, a cultural leader, a social leader, a faithful Christian father, a kind Christian mother, being in the right family doesn't save anyone. 
didn't save Esau. Having godly parents doesn't get you an automatic pass into God's family. What matters is the fruit we produce in keeping with faith in Jesus. So let's avoid being presumptuous. Let's not rest on our laurels or on our religious or family heritage when it comes to getting God's inheritance. Let's not think it's because our family has been in church for years or generations or that we, because we get along to church regularly and maybe bring others with us or get along to youth regularly and maybe bring others with us or that we're a fixture at this or that ministry or that people have thought well of us in the past or that we've been part of this church for years or that we've frequently been imagined by many as the most likely to be sainted (laughs) or because we've been a leader for years. To rest on any of these as the grounds for thinking God's inheritance is coming our way, it's to be presumptuous. Particularly as we use these things to excuse bad behaviour or attitudes, because that's to be like Esau. And so as to set ourselves up to despise our spiritual birthright. So, remember, Esau is an example written down for us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as he did, so that if we think we're standing firm, resting on our religious laurels and heritage, then we need to be careful we don't fall. By looking to Jesus again, confessing our presumption to God and relying again on Jesus alone to be in God's family. Let's not be like Esau. Let's not despise our spiritual birthright in Jesus by being earthly and presumptuous. And finally, uh, let's not be like Jacob despising God's gifts by grasping after life's blessing, uh, the blessings in life, particularly at cost to our brothers and sisters in Christ. As the Apostle Paul says to his friend Timothy, uh, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Jacob, he's a little bit of an illustration of these some people eager for money, for the inheritance, so so eager that he uses and abuses his brother and in so doing wanders from the faith, away from God's ways and ends up piercing himself with many griefs. As we'll see later in Genesis, his relationship with Esau will be the source of ongoing conflict and trouble for the rest of his life. Maybe, maybe you can think of similar examples that you've heard and seen where uh, the eagerness for money has destroyed relationships uh, between siblings and as they tussle over the family estate or between friends over an argument of money that's been lent or a purely money-making venture that's been ru- that's ruined a partnership. And Paul's like, run away from all that. Run instead towards the things of Jesus, of loving him and others in faith and gentleness. Make life about others and not about getting more stuff. And what's more, Even when something is good and good to use, only using it, uh, using it to love others. Using it in the context of loving, loving others. As Paul will say elsewhere, each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ didn't please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. As the weak ones for whom Christ suffered, we should be prepared to suffer for the good of others in their weaknesses and sensitivities. Uh, Jacob should have suffered to love his brash brother, brash hungry brother. He should have given him the stew to serve him, 
not to serve himself. Maybe even offered it to Esau before he asked. To, to treasure the blessings of God's grace is to do the opposite of what Jacob did, the opposite of grasping after the blessings for himself and outmanoeuvring his brother to get them, but to instead love at cost to ourselves, not to others. So even though in Christ we might be free to eat and drink whatever we like, watch wherever we like, listen to whatever we like, vote for whoever or whatever we like, or not vote, or do this or that religious thing or not. We're not to run roughshod over our brothers and sisters in their sensitivities in these things. We're not to treat them as something just to walk over to enjoy the blessings and freedoms that we have in Jesus. That's to be like Jacob here. And it's not only to despise God's people, it's to despise the blessings of God's grace too. So let's instead... Treasure those blessings by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ at cost to ourselves. Maybe by giving up time with family or sport to make spending time with our church family a priority. Or by giving up our money to help those out here at church in need. Or by giving up our energy to pray for those uh, in church and serving them. Or by giving our effort to help out in ministries at church. Because to never consider what's good for our brothers and sisters in Christ over ourselves, that's a little bit to be like Jacob and to despise the gift of God's grace to us. So let's keep in mind the way Esau despised his birthright and how Jacob despised God's gift and look instead to treasure the blessings of God's grace in Jesus. Treasure them by not being earthly and presumptuous and grasping, but instead by putting to death our earthly nature, relying afresh on Jesus alone, and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ over ourselves. I read a while ago uh, the church father, Augustine, He had some cool ideas on music. He believed that music reflected something of the nature of God as three persons eternally loving and serving each other. He reckoned that as a gift from God, the best music is one that serves the harmony, not the melody, because the harmony is the other. And so, he reasoned, as God's beauty is in the Trinity loving and serving the other, So music sounds beautiful as it serves the other, the harmony, the harmony. And is this not also true, possibly true for the way that we live? Going only on our earthly gut instinct and grasping at life for ourselves like Esau and Jacob in this passage, that's discordant and ugly. So let's instead make something tuneful and beautiful as we look to serve the other. God and his people over ourselves because it's there that we'll treasure the blessings of God's grace to us in Jesus. And I'm going to pray to that end now. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that you have lavished upon us in and through Jesus. Please, Help us not to take them for granted, to despise them, 
but rather to treasure those blessings by frequently putting to death our sinful, our earthly natures, by relying on Jesus alone to be in your family, by seeking to serve and love our brothers and sisters in Christ over ourselves, at cost to ourselves. Help us to treasure the blessings that you have poured on us in Jesus in these ways and so enjoy you and glorify you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.